0: Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 1 to 9. Now for the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to marry. But since there is so much immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife's body does not belong to her alone, but also to her husband. In the same way, the husband's body does not belong to him alone, but also to his wife. Do not deprive each other except by mutual consent and for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not as a command. I wish that all men were as I am, but each man has his own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. Now to the unmarried and the widows, I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried as I am. But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion.
1: Well, let me uh, pray for us as we look at God's word together. Our Father in heaven, I am am very aware that the, the matters before us tonight are matters over which many of us in this room will have wept many tears, and so we ask for your help tonight. Now, please help us to understand your word. Help us to see how it is good news. It is good for us. And we pray that you'd help us to believe and to respond. And Father, please help us to be a church family that, off the back of tonight, um, care for one another and look after one another. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Our culture is changing, and in many dramatic ways. Last week, we thought about how our culture is changing when it comes to how we view our bodies. This week, we think about how our culture views sexuality. And of course, sex is everywhere in our culture. On our TV screens, sex is used to sell anything from cars to chewing gum, from holidays to Hoover's. The films that we watch so often have a storyline that includes um, some kind of sexual encounter in it. Our Facebook feeds, the advert that pops up in our internet browser, the jokes people tell, the goals that people have for a good night out, the the purpose behind the use of so much of the the dating apps. Sex is everywhere. Uh, You could say that our, our culture is, in a way, obsessed by Sex. And yet, at the same time, there is tremendous confusion. On the one hand, sex is idolized. It's held up as this holy grail of human experience. To miss out on sex is to miss out on living, we are told. But on the other hand, sex is so often an area of huge pain and sadness. The one-night stand that promised so much leaves us feeling guilty And empty. The boundaries we crossed with our boyfriend or girlfriend early on when things seem so exciting, well, when the breakup occurs, they come back to haunt us. And within marriages, behind the thin veneer of happiness we can maintain for others to see, I've spoken with many couples who find the area of sex to be an area of deep pain and sadness. Into this confusion, the Bible speaks with with great clarity and with much-needed help. Look at verse 1. Paul says, Now, for the matters you wrote about. The Corinthians had written Paul a letter. From what follows, it becomes clear that, that within that letter, they've been asking Paul various questions, including questions around sex and marriage. And now comes the moment for Paul to respond to their letter and their questions. And so what we have before us tonight is not so much a marriage manual that covers everything the Bible might say about marriage and about sex. Rather, it is more like an email exchange that has zoomed in on a couple of specific issues. We need to bear this in mind because tonight Paul will not say everything we might want to know about this important matter but rather he'll help us on some specific issues. And before we dive in, I am I'm very aware that I am speaking to a mixed group tonight. Some of us are young, some of us are older. Some of us are single, some of us are married. Some of us are content, and some of us are in agony. The issues before us are complicated because life is complicated, And um, I do apologize in advance if I'm not able to cover in depth the particular area that you feel most pressing on you tonight. Um, Please do keep talking about these matters afterwards. And also note that Paul writes this whole chapter to be read out to the whole church family. And so he wants single people to hear what he has to say to those who are married. He wants those who are married to hear what he has to say to those who are single. Because the church is a family, a body. And when one part suffers, we all suffer. When one part rejoices, we all rejoice. And so tonight and in the next two weeks, um, please don't switch off if you're single and Paul addresses married people. Single people need to know what Paul is saying to those who are married. If we're married, please don't switch off when Paul addresses single people, because married people need to hear what Paul is saying to single people. If we are to support one another and be a family, we need to hear all of what Paul says tonight. Well, so let's dive in, and first we see on the handout, God has a good purpose for sex. And so verse 1 again. Now, about the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to marry. Almost certainly, this is a line from the Corinthian letter that Paul is quoting back to the Corinthians. And almost certainly, the footnote provides a better translation of their question. I wonder if you can see in the footnote down there, footnote A. Or, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Let's be clear, the Bible is not anti sex In fact, the very first command God gives humanity back in Genesis is to have sex. He says, be fruitful and multiply. And so how is it possible for the Corinthian Christians to have such a a low view of, of sexual relations in a marriage? Well, we saw last week that the Corinthian Christians had a very low view of the physical human body. They thought that when we die, that the human body will be stripped away from the soul, and our eternal future is going to be a spiritual existence only, no body, just soul. And because of that eternal expectation, they had a very low view of this present body. And that led them to two different mistakes. Last week, that low view of the body led them to sexual permissiveness. It doesn't matter what I do with my body. But this week, I think the other mistake is this. This low view of the body meant that they had begun to think that sex was, was dirty. It was anti-spiritual. If you wanted to be a really godly, zealous Christian, then you would stop having sex with your husband or your wife. Now look, it may not be that that's our particular problem in this culture today in the same way. And yet tonight, as Paul addresses that particular issue, the principles he gives us, well, that they are remarkably Urgent for us in our culture today. Look at what he says in response to verse two. "But since there is so much immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband." The immorality Paul was talking about was almost certainly what he'd covered last week. Um, there were some in the Corinthian church who were visiting prostitutes. And his point is simple. Corinthians, you've got this all wrong. It is good for a man to have sex with his wife, and it is definitely not good to go and use a prostitute instead in some misguided attempt to be more spiritual in your marriage. God does have a good purpose for sex, and it is within biblical marriage alone. Within that context, uh, in marriage between a man and a woman for life, as the Bible defines marriage, then sex is absolutely right. It is important. It is not dirty, not anti spiritual. Now, I just want to pause there for just a moment and to think this through. The flip side of what Paul is saying is this, of course, that sex outside of biblical marriage is not right. And that is a massively countercultural thing for us to hold to but it was back in Corinth as well. I just uh, flicked back over one page in the Bible, back to uh, the first half of chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians, and glance at verse 9. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9. Here Paul gives us a little snapshot of the kinds of sexual behavior taking place in Corinth, even amongst the Christians before they became Christians. He says in verse 9 that there was sexual immorality, there were, um, there were adulterers, there were male prostitutes, And there are homosexual offenders, amongst other things taking place in Corinth. That is the the, the backdrop that Paul is speaking into. And so when Paul says that, that biblical marriage is only between one man and one woman for life, you see he's going against the whole flow of Corinthian culture, which was remarkably permissive. Because Paul is very clear that the Bible's teaching on sex and marriage is not just for one culture for one time, but it is an eternal principle that runs right through Scripture. There are some church leaders in this country who tell us that we need to mold and change what we say about sex and marriage to echo what the culture of our day holds to be important and valid. We need to be nimble and change and reflect what's going on. If we want to win an audience with the world, we must say what they want to hear. But not Paul. Paul. He was massively countercultural in his day in Corinth, holding to a biblical model of marriage that was described for us back in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. It is between one man and one woman for life. And did you notice in chapter 6, when Paul was speaking last week, when he was explaining what happens when a man and a woman have sex together, he quoted Genesis 2 to say that they become one flesh. The point is this God's plan for marriage and his place for sex in marriage is not some cultural thing that applies to different cultures in different ways. No, it is a lasting principle through all of Scripture, established back in Genesis 1 and 2, and it lasts all the way through. And we must not lose our nerve on this. One of the reasons why there is so much pain and confusion around sex today is because our culture has moved away from the Bible Moved away from our creator's instructions, God knows how we work best because He made us. To abandon God's plans is devastating for us. But God's plan for sex and marriage is for our good, and it is a lasting principle throughout every generation. And then notice another profoundly countercultural thing Paul says. Look at verse three. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife's body does not belong to her alone but also to her husband. In the same way, the husband's body does not belong to him alone but also to his wife. Our culture says, my body, I will do with it what I want. Paul says, within marriage, we have a duty to our spouse. Our bodies belong to them as well. When a couple publicly commit to each other in marriage, when they leave their families and they join, they cleave together to form a new union, that union also includes their bodies. And sex within marriage is a crucial expression of this union. The two become one flesh. And so again, God has a good purpose for sex. It is a sign of this mutual belonging that is true for a married couple. And this makes sex within marriage very important. In fact, just notice how important. Verse 5, Do not deprive each other except by mutual consent and for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again, so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. The Corinthians may well have been saying, I'm too spiritual. I'm too busy praying to have sex with my husband or my wife. Okay, says Paul, prayer is important. If you have a conversation about it, you may well decide to, 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 to stop for a while in order to pray for a while, but don't make that time too long. Make sure you go back to having sex again. And even then, Paul seems uncomfortable with this brief pause because verse six he says, I say this as a concession, not as a command.'" And so sex within marriage should be an urgent priority for married couples. Well, some implications for us all. To the unmarried, know that sex within marriage is not a given. It is easy to think of married couples all enjoying lots of brilliant sex, but that can very easily not be the case. And for those who are single, if you were ever to be married in the future, please know that if you do get married to someone, your body will belong to them as well. And our culture is such a a self-centered view of sex that when a Christian who, who buys into that worldview gets married, so often they are deeply shocked by what marriage and sex are actually like. They're not equipped for it. And Paul would say to us, have a right expectation of marriage. There's a duty, there's a, a mutual belonging that our, our culture very, um, is, is very reticent to understand our own. To the married, I realize this can be a very painful topic indeed. Many couples can go for months, years, without having sex, This, in turn, can be a symptom of of deeper issues within the marriage relationship. And so to begin to talk about your sex life is to start to talk about things you just don't want to talk about. But can I urge you tonight to be brave, uh, to talk together with your spouse, and it may well be helpful to ask others for help as well. And sex within marriage should not be taken for granted. The Hollywood portrayal of sex is that it just happens so easily. It's just effortless. But actually, there needs to be a context. A loving relationship with good communication, with an openness, an honesty, a trust, a a sharing of life that is deep and profound. And within that context... Sex so often flows out of it, but it takes time and effort. It would be very easy to allow busyness at work or pursuing a hobby that takes us away from home as an excuse to distract us from investing in our marriages. But Paul would urge us to make sure that that's not happening, that we allow good time to invest in building that relationship with our spouse. And let me say that sex should never be weaponized it should never be withheld to make a point or to exert power over the other. And sex should certainly not be demanded or taken without consent. Rather, our first thought should be for the good, the welfare of the other. And please, can I say, if, if there is an abusive element in our relationship, if we are the abuser... We must stop. There is no place for that at all in God's plan for marriage. And if we are being abused, please don't put yourself into the place of danger. Escape, step back, seek help. That's an absolutely right thing for you to do if that is happening to us tonight. God has a good purpose for sex. Well, look, where does that leave people who are not married? In our culture that idolizes sex, this can feel like a very hard teaching. Well, Paul's not finished. Here's our second point. God has a good purpose for singleness. Look at verse 7. Paul says, I wish that all men were as I am, but each man has his own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. You see, Paul himself was a single man, and we can be confident because of his teaching on sex and marriage that he was a celibate man. And yet here he commends just that kind of life, a life of celibacy, which again sounds massively countercultural to our our way of thinking in in our world today. He'll say a lot more about singleness towards the end of 1 Corinthians 7, and if you can hang in there for two more weeks, we'll spend much more time on that uh, in a couple of weeks. But for now, Paul says yes. He commends singleness. But he's not trying to play top trumps between singleness and marriage to see which one is better. No, he has a very balanced view of both. He knows that both are good. Both marriage and singleness are gifts from God, good gifts that should not be despised. The thing is, the gift of singleness often doesn't feel like a gift. Uh, Many years ago, I went on a school trip to Russia. Uh, This was back in the mid-1990s, not long after Russia became more open to Westerners for travel. And um, I was trying to find a few gifts to take home to family, and I knew that my brother quite liked coffee. Now, I wasn't a coffee drinker. I didn't really understand coffee. I didn't know what kind of coffee my brother liked. And so I went to a local Russian supermarket back in the mid-'90s, and I went and found the cheapest own-brand instant Russian coffee. Um, and um, all pleased with myself, I bought it and brought it home. And I can still remember to this day the expression on my brother's face as he took the first sip of the own-brand instant 1990s black Russian coffee. It turns out it, it wasn't a good gift. Now for single people, reading that God gives this gift of singleness... It feels like the equivalent of giving someone Russian instant coffee back in the 1990s. It feels like God doesn't know what a good gift looks like. Sam Aubrey, um, in his really helpful book, Seven Myths About Singleness, it's on the bookstall tonight. I do recommend it. Uh, He points out that for other people, uh, the gift of singleness can sound like this superpower that comes on certain people which enables them to sail through life unmoved, unhurt, unconfused by singleness. They're absolutely happy in it, which means that there are two kinds of single people. There's those with the superpower gift, they're absolutely happy, and there are others who are single who don't have the gift of singleness, and they find that place to be remarkably hard, sad, and frustrating. But I think all of this misunderstands why God gives people gifts. Um, The church leader, Tim Keller, uh, quoted in in Sam's book, explains it this way. I think the quote will come on the screen. In his writings, Paul uses gift to mean an ability God gives to build others up. Paul is not speaking about some kind of elusive, stress-free state. And this is so helpful. The gift of singleness is not given primarily for our benefit if we are single, but so that we may be able to use it to serve other people. In 1 Corinthians 12, Paul will go on to show us how God gives his people lots of different gifts, all kinds of gifts, um, not just marriage or singleness, given to his people for the common good of the body. We've all got them. We've all got the opportunity to use those gifts to help others. And here back in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul is showing us God has a good purpose for singleness. Now I'm very aware that for some of us tonight, this is an incredibly painful topic. I wish there was more time to unpack how our longings for intimacy and close relationship should spread. Spur us and drive us on to look for the perfect relationship we have in Christ. And how one day when we see him face to face, he will meet all our deepest longings and feelings. I wish we had more time to talk about how when we become Christians, we are brought into a new family and a new network of uh, friends and relationships where we can discover real intimacy that doesn't have to be only in a marriage context. But for tonight, do know God has a purpose for our singleness if we are single. And I think that helps us to avoid curving in on ourselves in our singleness or to somehow self-pity ourselves or to think the grass is greener for other people who are married. See, both married people and single people were both called to use our gift to serve others and to build them up. But just having said singleness is good. Paul does provide an exception. Look at verse 8. Now to the unmarried and the widows, I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried, as I am. But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. There's much more the Bible has to say to help us decide if we should marry someone. Much more than this short passage Uh, For example, we know elsewhere in the Bible that the Bible is very clear that a Christian should not marry someone who's not a Christian. Also, we know in the Bible that uh, each of us are called not to lust, but to control ourselves sexually. But Paul's point is that uh, for those who are in a relationship with someone considering marriage, um, and the, um, the marriage prospect is with an appropriate person that the Bible would encourage us to consider, if that isn't in place... And if there are sexual urges that are putting our purity at risk or distracting us from serving the Lord, then there is a freedom. It's it's good. It's fine to marry. Well, look, we've covered lots of ground tonight. There's so much more we could say, but I want to finish by reminding us of Jesus. He was a man who never married. He never had sex. And he devoted his life to the service of others. And for those of us who are married, remember that in the most remarkable way, he did not insist on his rights when it came to his body, but rather he gave up his body in the most costly service, in death, for the sake of his bride, the church. In just a few moments, we're going to share bread and wine and remember the way Jesus used his life and his death at serving us with his body in the most wonderful way. Before that, uh, let's pray together. Father, we again recognize that these matters before us tonight are matters of, uh, that are deeply personal and so often painful, uh, matters that we find hard to talk about and address. And Father, please help us to look to Christ tonight, rejoicing in what he's done for us, his example. I Thank you for his costly death in our place. And we thank you for the future we all have in Christ, that day when he returns, that, that day of when the final great wedding will take place between Christ and his church. Father, please help us to look to him. and Please help us to make the most of the time you give us to serve one another. And Father, please help us to be a church family who are good at looking after one another, able to support one another in our pain and in our concerns, even from the issues of tonight. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.